As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. It is a foundational belief of our Christian faith that life is founded upon the bedrock of our participation within scripture and tradition. Yet how many of us can say that we have an understanding of what these two terms mean regarding the way that we live our lives? How many of us can say that we've seriously read the scriptures and wrestle alongside those who have devoted their lives to understanding the depth of their meaning? And ultimately, what do these texts written over 2,000 years ago have to say to us living in the 21st century? These, among many others, are the questions that we will be wrestling with in this weekly Bible study. My name is Nick Botsolis, and I invite all of you to join our St. John the Baptist community as we set out to meet Christ in the scriptures. And by wrestling with these texts and searching for their meaning in our life, it is my hope that we, like John the Baptist and all of the saints who have come before us, may continue to make his path straight. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another session of our St. John the Baptist Bible Study, Make His Path Straight. My name is Nick Botsolos, and once again, I'm happy to have you all here with me after our short break. Now we're picking up with the beginning of Jesus's passion. So for the past couple of weeks, we've been going through Jesus's ministry in Jerusalem. He's been teaching in the temple saying various parables, and now the fulfillment of everything that we've been leading up to is about to take place. As we see the Last Supper, followed by Jesus's passion, death, and resurrection. So before we get into this week's chapter, there's a parallel I think that we need to highlight that's very important for the overall context of the passion narrative in the resurrection and ascension ultimately within St. Luke's gospel. And that is the parallels between the exodus of Israel and Christ's exodus through death into life, ultimately into the kingdom of the father where he sits at his right hand at the very end when we hear about the ascension. So, Briefly, as an overview of what happened during the Exodus account, we have the Hebrew people who are enslaved by the Egyptians. And Moses comes along, and Moses leads them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, symbolically through death, because again, as we talk about in baptism, water represents at least are submerging into the water, represents passing from death into life. And when we baptize, we're passing from death, that is death of the things of this age, into new life in Christ. Similarly, when we see the Israelites passing through the Red Sea, what happens? Well, they're not quite in the promised land yet. However, they avoid the death that is chasing behind them from Pharaoh and his army who ultimately gets swallowed up by the Red Sea. And then from there, we see Israel for 40 years traveling, led by God himself and a pillar of fire, through the desert until they're ultimately led into the Promised Land. So this overall motif of Exodus has been talked about since the transfiguration of Jesus. Because if we remember the transfiguration chapter, what happened there was 
Jesus was speaking with both Moses and Elijah on top of the mountain, and what they were said to have been speaking of was Jesus's exodus, Jesus's departure. And that term exodus is used there because, again, that's hyperlinking us to this exodus account. So now when we see the first verse of St. Luke's 22nd chapter, we see the setting of the scene for Jesus's passion, which is during the time of the unleavened bread, which is called the Passover. So the Passover itself is the remembrance of the exodus of Israel. And in the same way that during the Last Supper, we're going to see a fulfillment of that exodus, that Passover meal, we're going to also ultimately see the fulfillment of an exodus overall in Christ passing through death into life and ultimately sitting at the right hand of the Father. So all of these various motifs we've been talking about are kind of going to meet their culmination here in the Passion Narrative. This Son of Man uh, language that we've continued to see over and over again from Daniel is going to also reveal itself. Because when Christ ultimately ascends, where is he seated? Well, he's going to be seated at the right hand of the Father. He's going to be seated in the heavens, as is the Son of Man figure. So all of these Old Testament motifs that we've been talking about kind of in passing, they're all coming to a head because the fulfillment of all of them, again, that word fulfillment means filling to its brim. So this full manifestation or this fulfillment is going to be ultimately in the saving acts of Jesus Christ. So with all of that rambling of me out of the way, we'll begin the 22nd chapter of St. Luke's Gospel. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of numbered with twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and, enga and engaged to give him money. So he agreed and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. So again, we see right here in the first verse, the setting of the scene here. The day of unleavened, the feast of unleavened bread is drawing near. That is the remembrance of the Passover. And as it's coming, we see the chief priests and the scribes were continuing to seek how they might put Jesus to death. But they haven't yet, because again, they've feared the people. This has been a motif we've seen ever since Jesus entered Jerusalem, when they saw him chasing the people who were selling out of the temple. Because it's from that moment when Jesus threatened their worldly authority that they finally decided, all right, it's time for us to get rid of this guy. It's time for us to kill him. But the reason why they haven't, as we see at the tail end of verse 2, is because they feared the people. Because again, if we go all the way back to when Jesus entered the temple for the first time, the people are hanging on his every word. As we heard when Christ was at the Mount of Olives, what would happen? Every single day he would go early in the morning to the temple, and the people would be there eagerly waiting for him already. So the people are hanging on his every word. The people love Christ. 
And in their examining of his authority, the leaders of the people are fearing their own authority. They're fearing the loss of their own status. And so this has been a hindrance for them. They're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place because they want to get rid of Jesus. They don't want him around anymore because he's threatening their authority. In the same vein, they don't know how to get rid of him because if they try to rid themselves of him, well, the people are going to be in an uproar because they're hanging on his every word. They're listening to all that he's saying. So the opportunity now arises where they're going to be able to get rid of Jesus. Because in verse 3, we see, Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who is one of the numbered with the twelve. So what we see here is someone within the inner circle is now going to betray Jesus. And this introduction of Satan into the narrative is very interesting and kind of unique to St. Luke's Gospel account. Because... St. Luke is explicitly showing us who is the actor behind the scenes with everything that's going on. It's not people who are evil, as we've talked about before. Because when people do evil things, well, what are they doing? They're giving themselves over to this animating spirit or this principle that is enslaving them, in a sense, that is motivating their actions. And this doesn't happen in the way that we kind of think of from a modern pop culture perspective. That is, okay, this random demon comes out of nowhere, you open the jar or read a book, and suddenly you're possessed. That's not the case. Rather, possession, from an Old Testament perspective or Semitic perspective in general, is this gradual process of giving yourself over to one of these powers, one of these animating spirits. So when we see Satan enters Judas, Judas is not a passive character in this narrative. And we're going to see that in particular when we get to the exchange between Judas and the leaders of the people for Jesus, because the exchange is for money. And if we remember what money symbolizes, well, it symbolizes mammon. That is, the things that are of this age. So the trade that's happening here when Satan enters into Judas is Judas is offering the gifts he's been given from God. He's casting them off. He's throwing them away. And instead, he's receiving the gifts of this age. That is, he's clinging to the things that are separate from God, in a sense, rather than using them to God's glory. And by holding on to the things of this age, again, when we've talked about this motif of this age versus the Messianic age, there's this motif of fulfillment and passing away. So the things of this age, if we're going to attach quotation marks around that, are the things that are fading. The matter which within time dissipates and falls apart where the things of the age that has come in Christ, that is the messianic age, are fulfilled. So matter itself, like the table that we're sitting at right now, will reach its fulfillment as well as us within the coming of the messianic age. But if I'm living for this table, well, what's going to happen? 
within time, if we're thinking about things from a linear perspective, this table is going to start to rot. This table is going to corrode. And if I'm fixated on my worship of the table, if that's the example I'm going to be using right now, well, then what will happen to me? Well, as time moves on and as I'm stuck obsessing over this table, I'm going to end up in the same state as that matter. However, as Christians, what we're called to do is transfigure the whole of creation by offering it up to the glory of God. And what that allows for us to do is be co-workers within salvation, co-workers in this whole manifestation and transfiguration of the whole world. So what we see here is Judas is obsessed with matter. What we see here is that Judas would rather have money than the true inheritance of salvation in Christ. So with that in mind, he allows for Satan to enter into him. That is, he's being animated by this spirit that wants to divide, this adversary of humanity. Because again, if we remember who Satan is, we can go all the way back to the book of Job to see how Satan interacts with humanity in the way that he's testing and tempting Job. And so this tester and this tempter has now entered into Judas. And we see in verse 4, he went away to confer with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray Jesus, him, that is Jesus, to them. And what happens when the leaders of the people hear this? Well, they're glad because they've been trying to rid themselves of Jesus this whole time. And they decide to engage to give him money. So this is the exchange that we were talking about. So Judas betrays Jesus for the things of this age, for mammon, for wealth. And so when this exchange takes place, we see that he agrees to it. And he seeks an opportunity to betray Jesus in the absence of the multitude. Because again, that has been the major issue here as to why they haven't gotten rid of Jesus yet. The people have been around. So Judas is going to find a time when the people are not around to bring Jesus into the hands of the chief priests and the leaders of the people. So moving on to verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house which he enters, and tell the householder, The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I am to eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Then make ready. And they went and found it as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So as we see the day of unleavened bread come along, where St. Luke highlights the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed, well, what is this symbolic of? Well, when... The Passover was celebrated, if we go all the way back to Exodus. The passing over that is taking place is the final plague of Egypt, that is the plague of death. So the Israelites 
mark their door with the lamb's blood in the angel of death within the exodus account passes over them and spares their firstborn children where we see with the egyptians this is not the case because they don't have this faith they don't have this revelation from moses and so in the same vein we see this connection the the day of unleavened bread is happening and that day is when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. In the similar vein to how Jesus will soon be sacrificed and his blood will be to the ultimate salvation of the whole of humanity. So in verse 8 we see Jesus sends Peter and John saying, Go and prepare a Passover for us that we may eat it. So he takes two of his closest apostles aside, Peter and John, and we're going to see Peter and John's role really expanded upon when we get into the Acts of the Apostles. However, we need to also remember where they've been with him. They've been with Jesus through these major revelations, in particular the Transfiguration. So these two are two of what we remember were the big three, the, the closest friends of Jesus during his ministry. And so they're given this specific duty. It's to go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And in verse 9, we see they say to him, where will you have us prepare it? Practically speaking, we need to remember where Jesus has been the whole time. He's been camped out on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. So they haven't had a house ever since they've entered into Jerusalem. They haven't had a house in general throughout the entirety of Christ's ministry. However, in particular, there's no one that they've connected with in Jerusalem that's been housing them. Instead, every night they've been returning to the Mount of Olives. So it's a very practical question that we see here when they ask him, where do you want us to prepare this? And so he says to him, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house which he enters, and tell the householder, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I'm to eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished there, make ready. So Jesus has a very specific prefiguration, we'll see, that we'll say, of what is going to transpire. And this may seem very strange to us because why is Jesus going through all of these details and saying, well, here's exactly what's going to happen when you guys enter the city? Well, this is to show us that, again, Christ is God, but also to show us his willingness in his coming passion. If something as simple as this can be prefigured by Jesus, then that shows us when we see him offered up that he's fully aware of everything that is about to transpire. So Jesus isn't being persecuted unwillingly. Jesus is being persecuted and actively participating in it to the glory of his Father. And this is an important motif for us to remember because it's going to play out throughout the entire Passion narrative. Because if God didn't willingly suffer, then he would not have also willingly granted us salvation through his suffering. And we'll see that with the martyrs. The martyrs do the same. When we'll read the account of St. Stephen, what is St. Stephen doing? Well, St. Stephen is being martyred, 
but he's also giving witness to the glory of God, and that's the reason why he is offering up his life. He's not doing it out of his own pride or sense of self. He's doing it rather to the glory of God, and we'll see that in particular within the whole chapter devoted to St. Stephen talking about how Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, this term that we've been throwing around so frequently in St. Luke's Gospel account. So again, if Jesus can predict, we'll say, so clearly all of these simple things that will transpire in Matthew and Luke, uh, Peter and Luke rather, finding the upper room, then this shows us that he's fully aware of everything that is about to transpire. Because again, Jesus the Christ is fully God and fully man. He's the Son of God. And he's in one he's one in essence and inseparable from the Father and the Spirit. So whenever we hear people talking about how well Trinitarian theology and all these things aren't located in the scriptures, well honestly as we've talked about time and time again, going through St. Luke's account in particular, there are so many places where we can cite those sources. There are so many places in the text itself where we see this being manifest. Now, the creedal statement that we have isn't explicitly laid out in the exact terms that we have it within the scriptures. That's correct. However, if you're paying close attention to what's happening throughout the entire gospel narrative, then you see where this summation, where the statement of faith comes from. Because that statement of faith that we profess every time we're in church, well, that statement of faith is rooted within the tradition as we see in the gospels. And all of our theology ultimately comes from the scripture and from our participation within sacred tradition, our participation in the scripture itself. So again, if Jesus sees these simple things coming, then that means he's fully aware of the bigger picture. He's fully aware of what is going to happen. And that reveals to us the significance in his willing participation in his own passion. And we hear in verse 13 that, these two apostles, they go out, and everything happened as they were told. They met the man carrying the jar. They entered the house behind him. The man who owned the house showed them this large, furnished, prepared upper room, and it's there where they set out to prepare the Passover. Now, the reason, or at least one of the reasons, why the Passover is prepared in this secretive way is because we will soon see at the Last Supper the only followers of Jesus who are there are the apostles. That is the twelve. But only two of those apostles are the ones who are sent out initially to prepare the space. So they don't know where they're going besides these two. And one reason for that, as we're looking at the text, could be because Judas is looking for an opportunity now to betray Jesus. He's looking for an opportunity to offer him up, and that's going to happen when they return to the Mount of Olives. However, we're going to see Jesus continue to say that this supper had to happen. The supper has to happen because it's the institution of the Eucharist, and the Eucharist will be the mode by which 
Jesus's presence will be made manifest in the church, as we'll see explicitly stated here, but continually stated by St. Luke in the Acts of the Apostles, the last chapter of St. Luke's account, and so on. So when we see this playing out, we can see there's multiple reasons why things are playing out in this manner. And ultimately, it's rooted in God's divine plan for salvation, because we can't strictly hammer down our particular interpretation of something and say, this is the be-all, end-all. So I highlight this just because I'm sure all of you listening to this afterwards and all of you sitting here right now, as we've been reading through the text, you've been pulling things out that I haven't been talking about. You've been noticing details that I may not have addressed. And that is because I am totally fallible. I'm just putting that out there. I don't see everything. And in fact, I have no possibility of being able to see every single detail within the text. What I'm doing here is trying to wrestle the text along with you. And everything that I'm saying and everything that I'm doing as we're journeying through these Gospels is honestly my musing in trying to understand what is it that God is revealing as I'm going through. And different things pop out for me. In the same vein that as all of you are walking through the scriptures, I'm sure you're seeing details that I can't see. So kind of the whole goal of this Bible study is to reveal that reality to you. The goal of this Bible study isn't for me to say, okay, we've sat down and I've given you the be-all, end-all of everything that is within St. Luke's gospel account. Because again, that would be impossible for me to do, and I'm not the most intelligent person on the planet, period, so I'm sure there are basic things that I've missed every single time we walk through here, let alone the big things that we've been addressing. So that's just an important reminder that whenever we're walking through the scriptures, there are so many different factors that are at play. But we also need to ask ourselves, well, ultimately, where is this all leading? Because another temptation we might fall in is paying too much attention to individual factors without realizing their ultimate endpoint or ultimately where they're all pointing us. So we could look at this detail of the two apostles being set aside so that way Judas doesn't know. And we could write papers about this. We could write an entire dissertation about this and spend five years of our life focusing on this one section. But ultimately, if we're missing where this entire narrative is going and what we're being directed towards, which is ultimately our salvation in Christ— all of that's meaningless. All of that's useless. So we can debate words, we can debate how things are phrased, and we can pull out key details that are very interesting to us within the scriptures. But if we fixate on them and isolate them from our ultimate goal of salvation in Christ, a life in Christ, well then, even though we're using the scriptures, what are we doing? Well, we're missing the mark. We're falling off that ultimate course. And that's something I've all too frequently done in my studies of the scriptures. So 
if that's a temptation for all of us, well, what are we called to do whenever we miss a mark? We're called to realize where we are, realize our current state, do whatever we can to repent and fix that state, but ultimately reorient ourselves towards Christ. So that's just a reminder of not only the various variables that are going on within the scriptures, but also just kind of how we approach them and what our mindset should be. Because if we're looking to the scriptures to validate the way that we look at the world, or if we're looking at the scriptures to bolster our opinions, well, then we're missing where they're ultimately leading us. Because ultimately, the scriptures are centered in the cross, the X that marks the spot of our faith. Because it's through the cross that salvation enters into the world. So moving on to verse 14. And when the hour came, he sat at table, and the apostles with him. And when he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I shall not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and when he gave thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold... The hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it was that would do this. So here we see, starting in verse 14, that the hour came when they were to sit at the table that was prepared by Peter and John. And as they're dining at the table, eating the Passover Seder, he says to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I shall not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So what is the fulfillment that's going to take place in the kingdom of God? Well, the fulfillment is going to be the Eucharist. Because what is the Eucharist for us Orthodox Christians? Well, it's our literal participation in the body and blood of Christ. It's allowing for him to dwell in us, reinvigorating us, and for us to then be able to go reinvigorated out into the world, preaching the gospel through our actions and words, and making him manifest in the world as the church, as the body of Christ. And so if we're going to talk about the Eucharist, I think it's important for us to talk first about our perception of symbol. Because we refer to the sacraments themselves as symbols. And from a Western perspective, where we think that symbol is something that's strictly representative of something else, that term gets very confusing. Because you hear a symbol, and I know I personally sit down and I either think of a percussion instrument or something that's representative of something else.
But that's not what we're talking about when we say symbol from a Greek perspective. A symbol is something that is not only representative, but it's also something to be participated in. So a symbol, yes, represents something, but it's also depicting the fullness of something. And that's what allows for us to participate within a symbol. So when we call the creed our symbol of faith, well, what is that? Does it just represent what our faith means? Well, yeah, it does represent what our faith means, symbolize what our faith means, but it's also something that we embody. It's also something that we are called to live. And through living the symbol of faith, through living our creed, what we see is the manifestation of Christ in the world. Because we are the church, the body of Christ. So if we have this understanding of symbol being yes and in a sense, it represents something, but it's also an invitation. It's an invitation to our participation in that reality, which is a higher reality, a reality that is not detached from us in the sense that we have no possibility of participating in it, but detached from us because it's divine. And yet, in the person of Jesus Christ, who has become a human being, who has become incarnate through the incarnation and our participation in life in him, we are able to participate in and grasp, at least in the form of shadows, this higher reality. So when we're trying to think about the Eucharist, well, what is it? Well, people will sit down and say, it's the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. And if we have this understanding of symbol, we can say, yes, and. Well, to that, people will be kind of taken aback because you look at the Eucharist and you see bread, water, and wine. That doesn't look like flesh and blood. But if, again, we understand what a symbol is, it doesn't have to be literal flesh and blood because in Jesus telling us to do this in remembrance of him, we see that he's calling us to a higher reality. So when we participate in the symbol of the Eucharist, which he tells us is my body and my blood, although we may not perceive it as literal material flesh and blood, he is calling us towards understanding a higher reality. So again, as I talked about in my little ramble earlier, if we fixate on Christ's body and blood being literally body and blood from our worldly perspective, and then we try to build up theologies of how it literally becomes body and blood, well, then we're missing the mark. Because Christ has told us, this is my body and this is my blood. And if we have the symbolic understanding of what that means, well, then we realize, okay, we're being called to perceiving something higher than we can even comprehend. That's a great mystery. And that's something we will continue to wrestle with for the whole of our life. If we have that understanding, we have our eyes upward, as Jesus was telling the apostles they needed to when he was talking about his second coming. So we need to think about our orientation. Where are we looking? Are we looking strictly at matter? 
and trying to perceive the world in really the only way that we can without Christ? Or are we trying to embody Christ and then look at the world through these lenses of faith, which are only obtained through our full participation in a life in Christ? Now, I'm sure in explaining what a symbol is, I've missed the mark in a lot of ways, and I'm open for anyone to help me grasp this understanding more fully. But at least through my experience of trying to explain what symbols are through catechism that I've taught, it seems that this is the easiest way for us to try and grasp it. It's not only representative, rather a symbol is an invitation to participation within this higher order reality, this reality that's only made manifest through life in Christ. So if we're trying to look at symbols as something literal in a temporal or physical sense, we're missing the mark. But if we're trying to look at a symbol as a fulfillment, ultimately in Christ, well then we have something to wrestle with. We have something to chew on. And so when we see Jesus talking to them and ultimately handing them this cup, which is one of the cups that is passed around during the Passover meal, the Passover Seder, he takes it and he says that he, after he gives thanks to God, because ultimately, remember, Jesus is constantly pointing us back to the Father and glorifying the Father. That's this relationship of Father-Son. Um, he takes it and he says to the apostles, Divide this among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Again, what's he pointing towards? He's pointing towards the fulfillment that will soon come. The wine will not just be wine. Rather, it will be our participation in his saving blood. And that is the fulfillment of this coming kingdom. Because when Christ offers up his blood for us, rather than blood condemning us, as it does from the slain people of old, if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, when Cain slays Abel, it purifies us. So their communion in this common cup will symbolize that. And it's very interesting that he gives it and he tells the apostles to divide it. Because this also gives us a glimpse, glimpse into their role in the church. The apostles will be the ones who preach the gospel. The apostles will be the ones who install bishops and create churches. And what is it actually that's creating the churches that we hear about? The Corinthian church, the Roman church. Well, what it is that's creating that church community isn't the apostles walking in and saying, okay, here's the exact process that we we um, ordain the bishop and put him in charge of everything. Rather, when the apostles go from place to place bringing the gospel, the gospel message is what constitutes the church in that location. So this will be their role, to spread the gospel. And in doing so, they will be administering to the church, administrating the church, the body of Christ. So when we see them being told to 
share this cup with one another. We see the role of service that they are being called to. Is in the same vein when we see the priests and the bishops administering the Eucharist, administering the sacraments in the church, serving the people. Well, they're living up to that same call that we see here of the apostles. And in verse 19, we hear very similar phrases to St. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians as well as our Eucharistic prayers within the church. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So what's Jesus telling us here? This is my body. He's handing bread around. He took it and he broke it in the same form that we have in our Eucharistic celebration. And he says, this is my body, which is given for you. So what is he telling them and us here today? Everything that is going to happen in the coming chapter, as Christ is betrayed, as Christ suffers, as Christ dies, is going to be for us, for you, for the whole of humanity. And so when the church comes together, when we gather for a Eucharistic celebration, the divine liturgy, what are we doing? Well, we're doing this in remembrance of him. Christ will be known in the breaking of the bread. So this remembrance, again, if we have a symbolic understanding of what's happening, is not something fond that we look back in the past on. Rather, it's participatory. When we are remembering Christ in the breaking of the bread, he is making his literal presence manifest there. And that's why whenever we are celebrating the Eucharist, we don't believe in two separate Eucharistic celebrations that are taking that are taking place. One in the heavens and one down here. We also don't believe that every church that has a Eucharistic celebration is doing a separate Eucharistic celebration. Rather, whenever we celebrate the Eucharist, regardless of geographical location, we are all as church celebrating the same Eucharist in the same body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So when we do this in remembrance of him, we are all as one church, that is, simultaneously remembering, but also participating in his saving acts for humanity. And we see this again in verse 20, when we see, likewise, he takes the cup after supper, saying, the cup which is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. So, what's a covenant? If we remember the Old Testament, there's a covenant between God and Abraham, among many other covenants. And the covenant is that God is going to make Abraham the father of many nations. And those nations are going to have the inheritance, which is the whole of creation. They're going to have the inheritance that is promised to them, the inheritance that is partially acquired when the Israelites go through the desert and the Exodus count, and at the end of 40 years enter into 
what is now known as Jerusalem, within the gospel account. So if we understand a covenant being a promise between God and his people, well, what do we see here? Well, it's the blood that is going to be poured out. That is Christ's blood is going to be this new covenant between him and his people. Well, what's the covenant going to be? What is the promise that God is bestowing upon his people here? Well, the promise is ultimate salvation in him. The ultimate promise that is made here is that we will have eternal life in him if we participate fully in this life in him. So we see within the Eucharist a lot of different factors taking place. We see the symbolic understanding going through the entirety of it. However, we also see a promise. Because when we're participating in the body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and allowing for it to dwell in us, we are simultaneously participating in his saving promise, in the kingdom. Because where is the kingdom? Where is heaven, if you will? Well, heaven and the kingdom is in the presence of Christ, who is sitting, as we will see in the Ascension account, at the right hand of the Father. So we are allowing for him to dwell in us. We do this in our baptism. We do this in all of the sacraments of the church. Ultimately, so we may be full participants in the saving promise that's granted to all of us, a saving promise that is sealed in his blood. Because it's not just a word. Jesus isn't just saying here, here's something that you guys are going to receive if you follow me. Rather, he's saying, this is the reality you are going to be participate participants in. If you follow after me, living the life that I have lived, a life that I am ultimately sealing in the blood of my personal sacrifice. So in the sacrifice of Christ, we see this fulfillment. In the sacrifice of Christ, we see this promise of this covenant between God and his people sealed in blood, ultimately sanctifying the world. Is the blood of God, the blood of Christ, sanctifies the whole of humanity rather than condemning the whole of humanity. But if we choose not to participate in that saving act, knowing it and being fully aware of it, well, then that leads to our own missing of the mark. That leads to our own misjudgment. And we hear again in verse 22, Jesus says, For the Son of Man goes at his been." That is, it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So again, we hear the son of man language being used. And that reminds us of, well, where is Jesus going? Well, Jesus is going to be sitting at the right hand of the Father. This is again a revelation of who he truly is because he's going into this place of honor. And yet, what do we see? Someone is going to betray him. And as we know from the prior section where Satan enters into Judas, it's someone in his closest circle. Someone who dips his hand in the dish with Christ. And so what's the reaction of the rest of the apostles? Well, they begin to question one another. 
which of them it was that would do this. So rather than just being overcome with sorrow by this reality, their immediate instinct is to go around questioning, okay, which of us is it? Let's try to figure out who's the traitor, who's the rat, if you will. So this is kind of setting the stage for these next two sections because we're going to see continually that the apostles don't fully grasp what's happening here. They've been with Jesus this whole time, but they don't fully comprehend the whole of what's happening. Because ultimately, the reality of salvation has not met its fulfillment yet. Because it will meet its fulfillment in Christ's saving passion and resurrection on the third day. So as we're moving into the further verses, we need to again remember the symbolic understanding of how we're called to look at the world. Because in looking at symbols and understanding the world through this symbolic lens, we see Christ continually trying to reveal to us things that are higher than our own comprehension. And in presenting these symbols to us, he's calling us. He's calling us to this higher perception of reality. A perception that can ultimately be fulfilled in our life in so moving on to verse 24. A dispute also arose among them, which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of this generation exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For which is greater one? the one that sits at table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who sits at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigns to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel." So this dispute among the apostles continues. And we see that a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be regarded as greatest. So again, we see where the mindset of the apostles is. They still don't quite grasp what it is that Christ is trying to reveal to them. He's continued to tell them about how they're supposed to serve as he serves, how they're supposed to lower themselves, and yet... What are they looking for? Well, they're looking for which one of them will be the greatest, which one of them will exercise the most authority over people. We need to remember again, there's this messianic understanding that Jesus was going to be a king, a conqueror, who was going to come in and liberate his people, Israel, from the Romans. And so we see a lot of this still at play here. Yet Jesus, once again, out of love in verse 25, says to them, the kings of this generation exercise lordship over them, that is, the children of this generation, of this age. And yet, he says, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. So what this means is Jesus is showing them how things work within the Gentile world. There are individuals who 
hold lordship, that is hold authority in the tyrannical way over the people. And there are also those in authority over those people. So this is kind of showing us this Roman governmental structure. You have these representatives of Caesar, these benefactors, who are basically thugs ruling over people. Because that's what we're going to see when we get the Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate isn't what we think of, you know, a guy wearing a toga, this nobleman. Rather, he's really a glorified thug. He's there to continue to stomp down the population that is being ruled over by the Roman government. And who does he have over him? Well, he has a benefactor. He has a Caesar. And so what Jesus is saying here is if this is how things work within the Gentile world, that is the world ruled by this age currently, because again, the Gentiles have not been brought into the church yet. That will not happen until Christ offers his body and his blood. But in verse 26, we hear him say, but not so with you. So the apostles, again, they're debating amongst themselves which of them is going to be greatest. But then he uses this example of how the governmental structure, if you will, occurs within the Roman government to show them this is not going to be the case with you. You're not going to be exercising this lordship out of your own authority or the authority given to you by some demonic force. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. And to drive this example home, he says, which is greatest, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? So if we're looking at this again from a worldly perspective, what are we going to think? We're going to think the greatest is the one who is being served at this table because he's sitting at the honored seat. However, in the very end of verse 27, we hear Jesus say, but I am among you as one who serves. So if Christ is ultimately the good one, if Christ is ultimately the most honored one, well, then what do we see? What we see in him serving his people, this is what he is calling us to do as well. He's not calling us to be served. Rather, he's calling us to serve as he serves. And then he says in verse 28, You are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigns to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So this is Jesus again pointing the apostles towards what they will truly receive. Because in their continuing with Jesus... He is assigning to them as his father assigns to him. Because again, everything that's given to the son is given from the father. He is assigning to them a kingdom. In the same way as the parable that we talked about a couple of weeks ago now spoke of a ruler who assigned his wealth, his property, to various servants. When they returned him his wealth multiplied, what did he do? Well, then he gave them lordship over various kingdoms. So in the same vein, what's Christ going to do? Well, he's granting these apostles, in a sense, 
lordship in his kingdom. But that lordship doesn't play out in the way that we see in the world. They're not using their authority to lord it over other people, to diminish other people. Rather, their authority is rooted in service. And if they live this life in him, what are they told? Well, you may eat and drink at my table and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That is, the whole of God's children. So it's only going to be through their submission to the will of God and their participation in the will of God that this great glory will be offered to them. But this great glory is only achieved through self-emptying, through lowering of oneself. So even though the apostles are going around debating which one of them is the greatest, we see here that this is not the right perception to have. Rather, that perception is focused on the things of this age. But the fulfillment that Jesus is highlighting here is the age to come, the age that has come in him, and how that age is made manifest through our participation in it, through our service of one another and our open love of the whole of creation. Because if we don't have love, the self-sacrificial love of Christ that we will see throughout this entire passion narrative, then we don't have anything. We're totally missing the mark. Because it's only out of the self-sacrificial love of Christ that salvation is possible for anyone. And so it's in our participation in the same self-emptying love, sharing it with others, that we're able to make Christ manifest in the world. Now moving on to verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. And he said to them, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. He said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you three times deny that you know me. So what do we see here? Jesus was addressing the rest of the apostles, and now he takes Peter aside. And he uses his old name. He's, remember, Peter, Rock, Petros. That's the name that Christ gives Peter. His name is Simon. And so Jesus acknowledges him as Simon and we see this double saying, Simon, Simon. So whenever you hear someone repeating themselves, what are they doing? Well, they're telling you to be attentive. They're calling you to really pay attention to what they're saying. And so when Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Well, what do we see? Who's the force that's at play in the background of this entire narrative? Well, it's Satan. It's this negative force. And the same Satan has entered in the Judas. Why? Because Judas forsook Christ. Judas offered himself up to Satan and allowed for him to dwell in him. And we see the same assault is now being at play with Peter. And yet we see in Jesus saying that Satan demanded to sift him like wheat, that is, separate Jesus 
from, uh, rather, separate Peter from Jesus, he has an intercessor. Because in verse 32, we hear Jesus say that I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. Well, we hear later that Peter's going to betray Jesus. He's going to deny him. He's going to say that he doesn't know him. Doesn't that seem like a failure of faith? Well, when we see this verse, we see the statement that your faith may not fail. And we need to understand it in an ultimate sense. Yeah, our faith may wane and we may miss the mark at points in our life. But we don't remember the saints for the worst moments of their life. We remember the saints for the whole of their life and the way that they ultimately live their life fulfilled in Christ. So if we remember the saints in such a way, we need to call that to mind in our own life. Because there are plenty of times that we deny that we know Christ in our own actions and our own words. Yet, what we see here is that he's constantly praying for us. He is constantly interceding for us. And ultimately, we see in Christ's passion that he's co-suffering with us and walking with us in all aspects of our life. And so if that's the reality, there's another promise that's given to Peter. And it's that when you have turned again, that is, after you have returned your role is to strengthen the brethren. So Jesus is telling Peter that you're going to miss the mark. You're going to deny that you know me. And we hear Peter in verse 33 say, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and even death. So we see the zeal of Peter. Peter is saying, no, Lord, this is not so. I'm going to follow you. And yet, Jesus tells him, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until three times you deny that you know me. So in spite of Peter's zeal, in this moment, we see that he's ultimately, well not ultimately, but rather in this narrative ultimately, going to miss the mark. However, Jesus is interceding for him. He's praying for him. He's there with him, even though he may not know it. Praying that in an ultimate sense that is within the whole of Peter's life, Satan will not have his demands met. He will not sift Peter from the role he's being called to. So even though Peter for a moment will deny Christ three times, what are we told? Well, ultimately he will return. And when he does, there's still work to be done. Is when he does, it's going to be his role to strengthen the brethren. That is, strengthen the whole church. And what is the strength? Well, the strength is the fact that this greatest apostle fell. This greatest apostle denies that he knows Jesus, who he loves so much that he so exuberantly proclaims, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and even to death. He misses the mark when temptation comes. He falls short. However, he also repents. He also gets back on track and then lives out the rest of his life glorifying God and preaching his gospel. So we need to remember St. Peter. Because St. Peter is a beautiful example to us of the realities of our faith. 
Because all too often we think about things in a very black and white manner. We think I do good things equals I'm a good person. And we also think if I do bad things, that means in a total sense I'm a bad person. But we're a mixed bag. And that's not very hard to see if we actually take a real look at our life. Because we have so many different factors that are motivating every single action in our life. And when we try to account for all of those factors, well, what do we see? We see that life is crazy and chaotic. But if that's the case, what are we called to do? Well, we're called to orient ourselves on the way. Orient our lives towards Christ. Because ultimately, he is the only one that can help us order that chaos. Ultimately, he is the only one who can help our life reach its fulfillment. And so we need to have the zeal of Peter in a sense. We need to zealously say, Lord, I will follow after you. I will do this. But we need to also remember, if and when we fall away, we need to also have the tears of repentance that we will see later that, t that Peter exudes. Because it's in his tears that we see he realizes how wrong he is. It's in his tears that he sees the state he is currently in. And those tears lay the foundation for the repentance that will allow for him, when he sees the resurrected Lord, to ultimately offer his life as witness to his glory. So moving on to verse 35. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no purse or bag or sandal, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let him who has a purse take it, and likewise a bag, and let him who has no sword sell his mantle and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was reckoned with transgressors. For what is written about me is it has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. So after Jesus tells Peter of the betrayal that he will participate in, and yet his ultimate return that will happen after Christ is risen, we see him turn to the rest of the apostles. And he reminds them of what happened way back in chapter 9 when he sent them out for the first time to preach the gospel. Because when he did so, he said, I send you out with no purse, no bag, and no sandals. So they had no provisions. They were not called to carry anything in excess with them. Rather, what was their role? Their role was to go out and preach the gospel. So he asked them, well, when you did this, did you lack anything? And they reply, nothing. So there's an affirmation here. They had their faith totally in Christ. They went out to preach the gospel. They healed people. They anointed the sick. And they didn't lack anything. Well, the reason for this is because what were they armed with? They were armed with the gospel. The gospel was the saving message. And what is the gospel? As we've talked about time and time again during this Bible study. Well, Evangelion is a glad tidings. It's good news. But 
more particularly, it's a military term. It's a term referring to the victory of a conqueror. So the Evangelion, the gospel, is Christ conquering death. So the good news that we are projecting into the world is what we proclaim during Pascha. Christ has risen from the dead, trampling down death by death. And to those in the tomb, he is granting life. So if that's the case, well, what were the apostles armed with when they were initially sent out way back in chapter 9? Well, they were armed with the gospel. They were armed with the word of Christ. And yet we see a shift here in verse 36. Because he says to them, But now let him who has a purse take it, and likewise a bag, and let him who has no sword sell his mantle and buy one. For I tell you, that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was reckoned with transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. So what's all of this mean? Well, Jesus was saying, look, you guys went out with nothing, and yet you had everything. And he's even telling them, what do you need to do? You need to sell your outer garment if you don't already own a sword, so that way you can obtain one. Well, if we take a literal viewing of this what jesus is saying is all right now you need possessions and you don't only need possessions you need a sword so that way you can defend yourselves and yet having this interpretation misses just about everything that has come before and is now proceeding because we hear him say for i tell you the scriptures must be fulfilled in me and the scriptures that are to be fulfilled here in quotations are and he was reckoned with transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. So he's pointing to the shift in the nature of the age that the apostles are in. They're now going to be in a time of persecution. They're now going to be in a time of struggle. So when we see him say, him who has a purse, take it, and likewise a bag, what does that mean? Well, it means that the provisions that you have right now, now is a time of survival. Now is a time of carrying on in me. So take those with you. He's not saying go look for extra. And he's not saying also go and try to multiply your pur what's in your purse and carry in excess. Rather, he's saying take what you need right now and follow after me. I am about to suffer. I am about to die. And ultimately, I will raise from the dead. However, the same is going to happen to you. Life is going to be difficult. You are going to struggle. You are going to suffer. Because the same has happened to me. You will be marked among the transgressors for my namesake. And so, if you don't have a way to protect yourself, as we see represented in the sword, what is he saying? Well, sell your outer mantle. Sell this portion of protection that you think you have from the elements so that way you can go and buy one. You need something to defend yourself with. And if we have this understanding again of what the apostles were initially girded with when they went out without anything, being the gospel, well, then we see what this sword is. It's the word of Christ. In fact, you see 
icons representing a scene that's described in Revelation where Christ has a sword or there's a sword coming out of Christ's mouth. This shows us that the word of God is a sword, but it's not an item of aggression. Rather, it's a weapon of defense. So when he's telling them that they need a sword, this is what he's pointing to. And yet we'll see later on that he's not saying for them to grab a literal sword to defend him. Because one of the apostles will take a sword and cut off the ear of the servant. And yet Jesus will correct them. Enough of this. Do not do this. And he'll heal that servant. Because it's the will of God that he offer his life. So if Jesus was trying to prepare them by saying, hey guys, grab some swords, that way you could defend me, well, why would he correct them afterwards? So rather what we see is Jesus is calling the apostles towards something higher, a higher understanding, because the sword they're to gird themselves with, to guard themselves with, is his word, is his gospel, the same implement that they went out into the world with initially. And yet, what do we see at the end of verse 38? We hear the apostles come to Jesus and they say, Look, Lord, here are two swords. They present him with two. He told them that they needed one. And yet, in their zeal, what do they do? They go around, they try to find among themselves everything they've got. And they're like, all right, Lord, here you go. We got two swords. Look, we did one even better. And yet, the final words of this section that we hear from Jesus is he says to them, is this enough? And if we look at the syntax in the Greek of what this is truly pointing towards, it is enough refers more to enough of this. You don't understand. Enough of this. I'm not going to try anymore. And we see that again in the narrative shift that takes place. And this is where I believe we're going to stop this week because we've already gone on pretty long. But anyways, we see a narrative shift taking place. The supper has ended. And starting in verse 39, we're going to see Jesus goes to and prays at the Mount of Olives. So when he says, enough of this, this is enough. We see the end of this section. And he's not saying these words out of anger towards the apostles. Because again, there's a lot of things that the apostles haven't been understanding. A lot of things that are going to reach their fulfillment when Christ raises from the dead. And yet, now we see the end of Jesus' teaching. At least in this proper sense. The disciples are soon going to be uh, referred to that is we're going to see the group is growing again but this was for the inner circle we saw the institution of the eucharist we saw this explanation of symbol and ultimately we see this manifestation in the saying to get a sword that we need to guard ourselves with the word of christ and it's my prayer that as we've been walking through all this, we're starting to grasp what that means. Because it's not enough for us to read the word and say, okay, now I understand Christ. 
or rather we're called to participation in the word. So when we hear people refer to our faith being rooted within scripture and tradition, and that the scripture and tradition interrelate with one another, well, what that means is the scripture is rooted in the word. Who is the word? Well, in our tradition, the word, the logos, is God, is Christ. Because as St. John tells us, Christ was the word who in the beginning brought all the creation. So if the word is a person, when we are reading the word of God, well, what are we called towards? Well, we're called to enter into a relationship with that person. So it's not enough to take an intellectual perspective of the scriptures. Rather, when we're reading the scriptures, we're being invited into a relationship. And in that relationship with Christ, we're being called to something even higher, which is ultimately fulfilled in a life that is the totality of our life, in him. So we need to be looking towards this greater reality. We need to be constantly asking God what it is he's trying to reveal to us in our life. Because each of us is receiving a different calling. But ultimately, all of our callings are leading in the same direction. The differences only lie in the way that they manifest themselves. So as we're continuing the walk through the Passion narrative and as we're nearing the end of St. Luke's Gospel account, it's important for us to continue to ask this question of what it is that God is trying to reveal to each and every one of us. Because we're not reading these Gospels in an intellectual way. Or at least I hope I'm not presenting this in such a manner. Is the intent for us in reading the Gospels is for us to be able to wrestle with what it is God is calling us to do in our life. So when we read the Gospels, when we read the Epistles, when we read the broader scriptures, when we attend church, when we participate in the body in any way, shape, or form, whether it be in our monotonous work day, or whether it be when we take the time to read and pray. It's my prayer that each and one, every one of us takes the time to ask ourselves and ultimately ask God, what is it that you are trying to form in me? And what is it that you are calling me to do? Because when we have eyes to see and ears to hear, that is, eyes and ears and a mind that is centered and devoted towards his will, then we will continue to see the true depth of reality that he's calling us towards. But this is a continual process. This is only made manifest through our continual wrestling with God. So as we continue to wrestle with the scriptures, we need to remember that we are wrestling with God himself the Logos of God, who in the beginning brought all of us and the whole creation into being. And when we're doing so, we're being invited to something higher. We're being invited into a relationship with him. And ultimately, we're being invited towards salvation, a salvation 
that we not only participate in in our own lives, but salvation that we make manifest in the lives of others through our participation in the saving acts of Christ. So thank you all for listening to this session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study. Make his path straight. And until next time, we'll talk to you all later. Thank you all for listening to this session of Make His Path Straight, a St. John the Baptist Bible study. Just as a reminder, the point of this Bible study is to invite each of you to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. So in the coming week, I invite you to take some time to read over the text we have just delved into, to see for yourself the depth of meaning that can be presented to us. If you're interested in the sources I'm using for the study, Links to the full list of pertinent books can be found in the description of the session. Last but not least, as we've been discussing in the Bible study, the scriptures are not separated from our lived tradition as Orthodox Christians. So if you'd like to gain a deeper understanding of what it is to participate in these texts and live a life that Christ calls us to live in the scriptures, I invite each of you listening to join our St. John the Baptist community here in Boston South End each Sunday for Orthros starting around 8.30 a.m., and the Divine Liturgy starting around 9.45 a.m. If you don't live in the Boston area, no worry. I've also linked in the bio the directory of Greek Orthodox churches as a resource so that you can find Orthodox churches near you. As always, thank you for listening, and may St. John the Forerunner give us strength as we all set out to draw near to Christ and make his path straight. Amen.